You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. This is all our hope. This is all our peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And it doesn't rest in the strength of our faith, but in the object. Our hope is in the object of our faith. You, Lord Jesus, the perfect Lamb, whose blood sits over the doorways of our lives, so that judgment that should be ours is not ours, because you've taken it so that we might have your life. Would you stir worship in our hearts that would just spill out of our mouths? Help us, Holy Spirit, as we come to your word to rejoice in and glory in the the wonder, the, the beauty of your cross. Equip and teach your people here this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning and welcome. I'm, uh, I'm always uh, just, yeah, I just love baptism Sundays. Uh, I don't know how else to say it other than they're just wonderful mornings of celebration. And um, I, I I love hearing the stories of God's grace at work in the lives of people, right? Things we couldn't orchestrate, things we couldn't plan if we tried. Like, Malaysia, not close, Fargo, Jesus, right? Like, these are things we don't, we don't plan. It's just what Jesus does. He seeks out and he rescues the lost, and we celebrate that. So that's what I love about baptism, this outward expression. It's a confession of like, Jesus has done something in my life, and I don't know what else to tell you other than Jesus. <laughs> and that's, that's one of my favorite components of this. Jesus seeks out and saves us, and now we participate in baptism as, a, as an act of obedience, as Marty said. And here's what's funny is it's not only the person being baptized this morning, uh, these two sisters in Christ this morning, a couple other folks uh, later at 11, it's not only them, but we also, we are bearing witness to that, and we actually are built up a little in our spirits. We are encouraged as we are reminded, you and I, as we sit here and listen to these stories of God's grace and we are reminded of the ever-present Christ. He's with us. And the ever-working power of the Holy Spirit of God in and through His people. We participate in that. We are reminded of that. And as Marty said, baptism is one of two ordinances or sacraments that Jesus gave His disciples to practice as part of His church. Baptism, and the other one being communion or the Lord's table. Now, when we put this date on the calendar for baptisms a number of months ago, I don't know if, Pastor Marty, I don't know if you're here yet, if you've changed out of your trunks. I don't know if you looked forward, there you are, um, if you looked forward on the calendar to like what we'd be talking about in Luke. He's, he's nodding, or he's shaking his head, no, he did not. But when we talked about a couple weeks ago, like, hey, where should we do baptisms? We have some people who said, I'd like to be baptized. When should we do that? We can set up this tank whenever. And we were like, I don't know, the 14th sounds like a good date. Let's pick that one. And I don't know if you know this, but when we mapped out this series in Luke's gospel, like five years ago, uh, when we mapped out the the texts we'd be looking at, um, so I just think it's the kind providence of God that we just happen to be studying a portion of Luke, looking at the Lord's Supper on the day when we also participate together in baptism. So I'm really excited for our time today. You can go ahead and grab your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 22. That's where we're going to be. Luke 22. If you need a Bible, some folks are coming around and can get you one. You can follow along with us, and if you do not own a Bible, please take one of these with you um, so that you have one of your own. 
Luke 22. Luke begins chapter 22 telling us that Jesus and his disciples had now come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover meal. Passover was a, essentially a week-long celebration of meals and fasts and prayers and time together. Week-long celebration. And many people, many faithful Jews had made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover. And so it's, Jerusalem's crowded with people who aren't normally in Jerusalem. And that's where we pick up Luke's account. Uh, follow along with me, Luke chapter 22. We're going to start in verse 7 and read through verse 23 today, um, where Jesus has this meal with his disciples. Luke 22, starting in verse 7. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he entered, and tell the master of that house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he'll show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it, eat it again, excuse me, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup is, that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. This is God's holy and perfect word for us. Now, we believe that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. And so one of the benefits of working our way through the Bible, section by section, passage by passage, verse by verse, is that when the Bible highlights a topic or a theological truth or an idea, we then get to discover on our way through the text what God wants his people to learn or know about that particular thing, that particular truth. In this case, we are reading through the firsthand account of Jesus instituting what we call the Lord's Supper, communion. Now, depending on how you grew up, depending on your background or your experience, you, uh, like in this room, there are probably a, a handful of different understandings about what the elements mean or why they are important. Or you might not know where this practice of communion comes from or why we practice it the way we do here at River City. And so that's one of the questions, kind of the main question, as we look at a text like this, I want to try to answer this morning, is this, what is the meaning of the meal? It starts with Jesus, and he does something to it, and we'll talk about it here together. But I want to answer that question. What is the meaning of this meal? And in a very literal way, Jesus sets the table so that his disciples and so that we might know him as our sacrificial lamb and that in him our souls would be satisfied. That's the big idea, the answer, if you will, to the question. What, what is the meaning of the meal? It's so that we might know Jesus as our sacrificial lamb and that in Jesus our souls would be satisfied. So the title for the message today, for those of you who are taking notes, I want to put it at the top of the paper, Final Passover, Future Glory. Final Passover, Future Glory. And we're going to look at the text like this. Jesus shares with his disciples this Passover meal. And often, and you probably see it in your uh, Bibles, the little heading over this section of Scripture, starting in verse 14, it says the Lord's Supper. Sometimes it'll even say the Last Supper in other gospel accounts. And so we have this final Passover meal 
And then we have this last supper with Jesus and his disciples and where he institutes the Lord's Supper. For those of you who are visual learners, here's how I picture this. Kind of Venn diagram style. Passover meal, Last Supper, Lord's Supper. Now maybe that's helpful to you or maybe it's not. It's helpful to me. So there you go. Congratulations. You know how Jake's brain works. So Jesus sits down with his disciples for this Passover meal. And so this Last Supper kind of serves as a bridge between what they knew as the Passover and all that that signifies, and we'll get into some of that. And then this, this new supper that Jesus is instituting, and all that it signifies as Jesus is preparing to go to the cross. And so that's how we're going to look at our text. We're going to kind of move from left to right across this Venn diagram, if you will. If you were to look at it in terms of different meals, this is our menu for the, the morning, looking at these different meals, three different meals, if you will. First, the Passover. Second, the Last Supper, and third, the Lord's Supper. And the first two, we'll move a little quickly through them to get to the third one. How each of these meals are designed by God to help God's people remember what God has done and, as Jesus institutes this new meal, not only help us remember but also nourishes us spiritually, which we're going to talk about as God's people as we live and move and worship by faith. So let's look at the first meal together, the Passover meal. Verse 7. Luke tells us that the day of unleavened bread was here. That initiates this series of celebrations, of, of meals. The day of unleavened bread or the feast of unleavened bread. Now, in the ancient Near East, both leavened bread and unleavened bread are are common types of bread. Bread made with yeast, that is leavened bread, and bread made without, which is unleavened. Now, bread that's made with yeast needs time to prepare because the dough needs to rise. Anyone who's used yeast to make bread knows this, right? Now, you can make a pretty quick bread with the yeast, modern yeast that we have on hand. I think we have a large jar of it in our fridge, but the bread still needs to rise, right? Without kind of our modern conveniences, making a raised bread is going to take a little bit longer. Any sourdough bread makers in the room? Anyone really like you're in? A couple of you? You can raise your hands. It's okay. Some of you are like, I wish. I just keep killing my sourdough starter. How many of you are that, right? No one wants to raise their hands and admit that they, are, they murder yeast and they're trying to make bread. It's not murder. I'm just kidding. Anyone have sourdough starter at home right now, sitting in a fridge or on a counter or somewhere, right? A couple of hands, right? It's funny, you raised your hand for that, that you have it, Austin, but you haven't used it. You don't make it. Okay. Right? Now that I've mentioned it, how many of you are interested in eating some bread this afternoon, right? Right? Now, I have it on good baking authority that if you want to make your own, now be really clear, a natural sourdough starter. Natural, I mean, you're not contributing yeast from an outside source. You're literally gathering yeast from the air, from your environment. You can do this, by the way, but it takes a while. In fact, one baker uh, that I read is like at least a week, maybe two, to get a nice, robust, leavening agent to start from nothing, essentially. It's going to take a while. The the whole point of it, if you want to make a good, risen, crusty loaf of delicious, gluteny bread. It's going to take you a little bit of time. Now, for the Passover and for this whole set of, of feasts, this whole week long, the people were actually supposed to remove all the leaven from their homes. The bread was supposed to be unleavened, which should prompt the question, why? If, bo- if all these kinds of different types of bread are, are common, why this? Well, the whole celebration of Passover comes from Exodus chapter 12. You can turn there if you'd like. I'll put some passages up on the screen as well. Exodus chapter 12. Exodus, if you remember, tells the story. God's people are enslaved in Egypt under the harsh rule of their Pharaoh. And so God sends Moses to go to Pharaoh, say, let my people go. Pharaoh refuses. And so to loosen Pharaoh's grip, 
around God's people, God sends plagues upon the land of Egypt. And each time, with each plague, it gets kind of progressively worse, progressively harder for both the Egyptians and sometimes God's own people. And with every subsequent plague, Pharaoh's heart gets harder and he just refuses even more to let God's people go. And so finally, the final plague that God sends upon Egypt is the death of every firstborn in Egypt. Dave read the passage earlier. And in Exodus chapter 12, through Moses, God gives his people some instructions. He says they're to take an unblemished lamb and kill it. They're to take some of the blood from that lamb and to put it on the doorposts and the lintels of the houses in which they will eat it. And they're to prepare it in a certain way, roasted with bitter herbs, and shall eat it with unleavened bread. And they're not to have leftovers. If you caught that, they're not supposed to have any leftovers. They're supposed to burn whatever they don't eat. And they're to eat the meal fully clothed with their belt on and their sandals on and their staff in their hand. And Exodus tells us that they're supposed to eat it with haste. That means eat it quickly. There's no lollygagging at the table, kids in the room who are lollygaggers. I have some in my house. Why? Why? Why all of this? Why all these kind of bizarre instructions on how to cook it and how to prepare it and how to eat it with your shoes on? Why? Exodus 12, verse 12. For the Lord is going to pass through Egypt that night and strike down every firstborn in every home that does not have blood on the doorposts. So, they needed to prep the lamb and not have leftovers and eat unleavened bread and make sure their shoes are on and that they're ready because the Lord is going to move and they have to be ready to move right along with Him. Their departure from Egypt is going to be quick. If they actually believe that God is going to do what he said he's going to do, then they have to be ready to follow him when he says, and now's the time. So they're preparing this meal, the lamb, the bread, in a certain way. They're wearing their shoes and their outdoor cloak in a certain way. Why? That's all, they're all doing that by faith that God is actually going to do what he's promised he's going to do. So they don't have time to make the kind of dough that needs time to rise and then be shaped and then rise again and then be baked. They don't have time for that. They've got to eat quickly and be ready. And so every Passover meal from that day forward is a memorial. Look at Exodus chapter 12, verse 14. This day shall be a memorial for you, a memorial day for you, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord, Yahweh, throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. Seven days of remembering this is what God has done. He promised he'd free us, and he freed us, and we followed him out of slavery. So here Jesus is sitting down to eat this feast of unleavened bread with his disciples. That's where we get to. Jesus is celebrating this Passover meal with his disciples. And Jesus, Luke tells us, Jesus delegates the meal prep to Peter and John. Go back to Luke chapter 22, verse 8. He says to them, go prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat it. Now, these men don't all live in Jerusalem. So they asked the question that you and I would also ask Jesus, where would you like us to have this meal? None of us live here. None of us have a house. Where are we supposed to eat this? Where should we prepare this meal, Jesus? And Jesus tells them that as they enter into the city, they'll be met by a man carrying a jar of water. Follow him to his house and tell the master of that house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room that we may eat the Passover with, that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, prepare it there. And they went, and that's exactly what they found, and they prepared the Passover meal. Now, a couple things before we talked about the meal itself and how this Passover turns into a Last Supper. First, none of the disciples know where they're going to be for the Passover. And I think that's helpful because, as we looked at last week, Judas has already decided to betray Jesus. He's looking for an opportunity, Luke tells us, to betray him. And so if none of the disciples know where they're going to eat the Passover, neither does Judas, so he can't betray Jesus at the Passover. And we'll look at a little bit more next week what happens uh, 
Actually, it's in a couple weeks. That doesn't matter. The point is, we'll look at what that, when Judas does have an opportunity to betray Jesus. But the point is, nobody knows where they're going to eat until the moment when Jesus tells them, now go find this guy. Second, Jesus tells Peter and John they'll find a man carrying a jar of water, which might seem normal to you and me, but in the first century, typically, you wouldn't find guys carrying jars of water. Culturally, that's more of a woman's job. Typically, if you found men carrying water, it was larger skins of water to fill jars. And so there's this unique little kind of cultural attention getter that Jesus has set up for these disciples to know exactly who it is we're supposed to find and we follow him to his house and it's his master is the person whose house we're supposed to have this meal at. So that it's just a little side piece here. Jesus has likely prepared ahead of time a place for them and plans to get everything ready. And this upper room where they meet, it's the common guest room in any first century Near East home, either in the back of the house or on the second floor of the roof of the house. And furnished means it had a table and it had mats around so that they could sit and have a meal together. Mats on the floor for reclining. And so it's here that Jesus and his disciples come together to celebrate the Passover meal, just as God had instructed his people all the way back in Exodus chapter 12. Except this Passover meal is going to be a little different which leads us to our second meal, our second course, if you will, this Last Supper. Look at verse 14. And when the hour came, Luke tells us, he, Jesus, reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, it's likely Jesus had observed this Passover meal his entire life. Each year, remembering God's faithfulness, right? This is why we have these sorts of celebrations in our lives, right? We have these markers in our lives to remember something. An anniversary, a birthday, a celebration, a baptism day, right? We, we have these things to remember, and Jesus, for his entire life, year after year, had gathered with his family to remember the faithfulness of God in rescuing us from slavery, the faithfulness of God in rescuing us from slavery, year in and year out, each year rehearsing what happened in that first Passover, where God's people had to act by faith in what God told them to do. We prepare the lamb in the same way, we eat the same kind of bread in the same manner to remember and to rehearse This is what God has done. Because God's rescue of his people was not to be forgotten. The Passover meal is to be eaten reclined on the floor. So they're not sitting at chairs. They're leaning on the floor on mats or on a pillow, a cushion. And while the Passover was traditionally celebrated as a household or perhaps with close family or neighbors, as we read earlier, Jesus celebrates this Passover meal with his disciples. These are his family, his house right now. And if you pick up on this, there's this joy, I think, in Jesus. He's, he has this reverent appreciation for the Passover. You see how he says that? I, I earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I wanted to remember with you one more time the faithfulness of God before I have to go and suffer. So Jesus leads them through the celebration, the liturgy of the meal, if you will, with prayers and remembrances of what God did in Egypt and over and over. Jesus leads them through this this celebration. But as they work their way through the meal, the last Passover becomes something new. It moves from a last Passover to the Lord's Supper. And so here's the third and kind of final meal, if you will, that we'll look at from the text. And here's the language that we know from our own practice of communion. Verse 19, Jesus took bread. When he gave thanks for it, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, in the traditional Passover meal, there's the breaking of bread, and there are multiple cups of wine at different parts of the meal. 
And the bread and the wine are meant to signify certain things in the story of God's rescue. In this case, the bread played an important part of the meal. A large piece of unleavened bread is broken into pieces. The smaller piece is shared amongst the people at the table, and the larger one is put away for later. We'll come back to that in a second, by the way. Again, the bread was unleavened. It was flat because they didn't have time to make raised bread, and it was symbolic of the meal they had the night of their freedom. But Jesus does something different with the liturgy. He changes it. He changes the meal that all of these men probably grew up with the same prayers and the same psalms and the same reminders, and Jesus changes it. He says, you see this bread that I break? This is not just the bread that the Lord God commanded you to make when you were in Egypt. This is my body, he says, which is given to you. So when you break the bread, you are doing this not only in remembrance of freedom from slavery in Egypt, but Jesus says in remembrance of me. Verse 20, Jesus continues, likewise the cup after they had eaten. So this is likely the third cup of wine in the process that they've shared amongst themselves. The third cup, he says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This cup of wine that is shared after the meal is eaten, it's the cup of redemption. It's the one that signifies the slaying of the Passover lamb. This cup remembers how the Lord redeems Israel with an outstretched arm and the blood of a sacrifice. And Jesus says, this cup that is poured out for you, for your redemption, this this is the new covenant, he says, in my blood. Now, in, in, in just a moment, we'll get to what all this signifies for us on this side of the cross as we take communion. But just for a moment, consider the disciples and what they must have been thinking as Jesus was talking. Think about it for a second. This was not what they had expected to this point. This is not the typical liturgy that they were familiar with, the words that they knew their entire lives. Jesus is inserting himself into the story of God's rescue of his people. Freedom from slavery in Egypt is one thing, but freedom from bondage to sin and bondage to Satan, that's another thing. It's one thing to pour out drops of wine representing God's judgment on the wicked, which was part of the Passover meal. It's a whole other thing to pour out the entire wrath of God's judgment on Jesus for sin, for our sin. And so here Jesus takes the familiar elements of bread and wine and he shows his disciples he is the better spotless lamb whose body will nourish them. He's the better spotless lamb whose blood will cover them so that the judgment of God, which should fall on them, won't. And in this last supper, Jesus sets a new table. He says, not in the cup, but in my blood, I'm creating a new covenant. Now, a covenant is an agreement struck between two parties. God made a covenant with Abraham. And he said, through you, through Abraham, I'm going to create a people for myself, God says. That they will be my people and I will be their God. And God keeps his covenant promise all through what we have in the Old Testament. It's a retelling of God's covenant promise and a telling us of his faithfulness throughout it. Even when God's people fail, God is faithful. And so Jesus takes all the covenant promises of God and says, you'll find fulfillment of all God's promises in me. And in me, God is initiating a new covenant with you. So I'm not just going to be the the God of Abraham's people. I'm the God of you. You will be my people and I will be your God. And this covenant people will be made from every tribe and tongue and language. And in me, Jesus is saying, they'll be one. So right here at this table, when the disciples thought they'd be celebrating a normal Passover meal with their friends, 
Jesus serves his final Passover meal and initiates an entirely new meal, a new supper. Now, that's all great. But what does this mean for us? At the beginning, I said there are two ordinances or sacraments that are given by Jesus to the church, baptism and communion. We see one here in Luke 22 where Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, right? The bread and the cup, that's communion, that's the Lord's Supper. And the other we see in Matthew 28 when Jesus commissions out his disciples and he says, go therefore to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that's baptism. So there's, there's two parts to this. There's two parts to our participation in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. There's the theology behind it, and there's the practice of it. Two parts. First, the theology of it. Now, with all covenants, every covenant relationship, there are signs, and there are the things that those signs signify. Okay? Follow me. The sign of baptism right, signifies that the person being baptized is aligned with Christ in both his death and in his resurrection. The water doesn't save the person. It is the sign, the outward sign that signifies this is what salvation is and this is what salvation does. It's death to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So it signifies, the sign of water signifies what salvation is and does. Likewise, in the Lord's Supper, the sign is broken bread and a cup, and it signifies the sacrifice of Christ Jesus on the cross and the spilling of his blood for our forgiveness and our cleansing. The sign is the bread and the cup, and it signifies the finished work of Jesus to save and to cleanse his people. And so in both signs, we believe Christ is present with his people by faith. Here's, we're going to get into the theological weeds here, and so follow me, okay? Christ is present with his people by faith. So baptism and communion are acts of faith where the Spirit is at work in God's people to encourage us, to renew us, to convict us, to sanctify us, and to build us up. But that's happening spiritually by the Holy Spirit in God's people as we participate together in these things he's called us to. Now, a couple things. We do not believe, as Roman Catholics do, that Christ is present corporally, like tangibly. They hold to the, a theology that the bread and the wine become the, the literal body and blood of Christ. We do not hold to that. In fact, that is part of what is severely problematic about all the theology around the Roman Catholic Mass. It is essentially a bloodless sacrifice of Christ every time the Mass is celebrated, which is problematic at best. So we don't hold to that. Not only does it ignore the words of Hebrews, where Hebrews tells us that Christ sacrifices once, once for all, but it also splits Christ's body into pieces. By the way, Jesus is right now seated in his glorified and complete body at the right hand of the Father in the heavens. We're not pulling parts of him off. Okay? Just, there you go. Rather, we believe in the Lord's Supper that the Bible is clear that Christ is present with his people spiritually by faith. Our position is informed by how the London Baptist Confession of Faith speaks of Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper. Here, let me just read this for you from the London Baptist Confession, chapter 30, section 7. Worthy recipients who outwardly partake of the visible elements in the ordinance, so those who take of the elements together properly, also by faith inwardly receive and feed on Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. They do so, here we go, really and truly, yet not physically and bodily, but spiritually. The body and blood of Christ are not present bodily or physically in the ordinance, but spiritually to the faith of believers, just as the elements themselves are present to their outward senses. So it's this. 
just as our outward senses, like our noses and our mouths and our eyes and ears can, can see and hear and smell and taste the elements, the bread and the cup in particular, so our spirits can know that Christ is present with us and the sign, the practical, tangible sign that God gives us so that we can be reminded that Christ is present with us is the bread and the cup. When Jesus says, this is my body. That's the theological part. And we wanna, if you want to wrestle through some more of that, I'll, I'm, maybe I'll give Marty some things to, to, to share with the uh, community groups to be able to wrestle through some of those things. That's the theological part of it, which leads to the practice. Now, there's no prescription in the Bible for how often we're to take the Lord's Supper together. There's no rule of you should do it weekly or you should do it monthly or you should do it quarterly or you should do it once a year. Our conviction is that the weekly practice of communion is a fitting and encouraging participation together in this faith-strengthening reminder. We feast on the Word of God in song and sermon. We feast on the presence of the Spirit in prayer and praise. And so our souls are nourished, our spirits are fed as we respond in faith in confession and receive assurance of God's faithfulness as we look again at Christ's finished work on the cross together as a people in the Lord's table. That's why we do it regularly, because we think it's good for us. It's good for our souls. So there's this both a sense of importance and urgency, right? We set aside this time on purpose, not only for the word preached, not only for praises sung, but for the meal that we share. That's why we set it aside. That's part of it. And there's also this sense of because it's such a benefit for the souls of God's people to remember and rehearse the gospel in communion, why not partake of it when we gather together for worship like this? So it's a little bit of both. So communion is for us Christians to follow Jesus' instruction to remember and proclaim his finished work. Now, the question I asked at the beginning was this, what is the meaning of the meal? And not just the meaning of the Passover meal, but what is the meaning of the meal here then for us? What's our takeaway now is we come to the table week in and week out so that it doesn't become just like this thing that we do and it becomes this rote, memorized thing and I remember that confession and I say that thing and I walk the aisle and do the thing and do the, and done. How does it not just become that, but we retain its meaning and its significance together? Now, we've looked at some different parts of the meal that Jesus served and how some of that points to our communion practice, but I'd like to dig into some practical application of what we're talking about. How, how we, week in and week out, as we gather to, to worship corporately, how we can aim our hearts, our affections at remembering Jesus is our sacrificial lamb. How can we aim our souls at being satisfied in Jesus when we come to the communion table? So here's how I'd like to encourage us to think about the Lord's table. Every time we come together, including this morning. I'm borrowing this from a pastor and an author named Eric Raymond. Uh, it's phenomenal. I've had this kind of saved in my files for a number of years now. Um, so it has pastored me in my own preparation for communion, and so I'm just going to share it with you. He wrote an article back in 2019. Uh, I'll share it in the weekly update this week in resources, and I'm going to borrow from him here. He calls them five looks. We should have five looks as we come to the communion table, and I thought they were so good. I'm like, I'm just going to quote him. I'm going to give him credit and tell them to you because I think they're beneficial for us. He says, five looks as we come to the table. The first look as we come to the communion table is to look up. We look up. God is the one who provides. We start there. God invites us to his table. It's not ours. It's his table. He invites us. Just like Abraham and Isaac had to trust that God would provide the ram, God will provide the sacrifice. In the exact same way, we acknowledge God will provide the meal. When he is he is faithful even when we are faithless. The first look as we come to the community table is to look up and acknowledge God is God. Second, look in. Now this is probably the look that we're, with which we're most familiar. In our normal communion instructions, 
we tell everyone to examine themselves. It's an inward self-reflection, right? So Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul giving the church in Corinth, which had its whole share of problems, telling them, hey, here's how you practice the Lord's Supper. He says, whoever eats, or, uh, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner is guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why we examine our own hearts and we trust that the Holy Spirit is going to do what he does in convicting us of sin and he's also going to do what he does in empowering us to confess that sin knowing that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. So we're not ashamed by it. We confess it freely and receive God's forgiveness. Because if we have faith in Jesus, his blood covers us And so the judgment that should fall on us now doesn't fall on us. And so in our looking in, we're not just saying, man, I'm terrible. We are. (laughs) And, oh, how great is Jesus. So we look in and we examine ourselves to make sure we're trusting not in ourselves, but we're trusting in Christ. We look up, we look in. Raymond says we look back. That's the third look. We don't only look up or look in, but communion is given to us to remember. This is the other part of our communion practice that's pretty familiar, right? What are we doing? We're looking back. When you do this, Jesus says, you do this in remembrance of me. He's telling us to remember that he's initiated a new covenant. Raymond says it this way, this new covenant has a better priest and a better sacrifice. The blood of the lamb is sufficient to save sinners like you and me. So the Lord's table, communion, is an opportunity to look back at the cross and to praise Jesus for the blessing of participating in his new covenant that he has purchased us by his own blood. We look up, we look in, we look back. Here's the fourth one he gives, and this is the the weird one for me. We look around. We have a very individualized culture which affects a very individualized faith. So typically when we come to the table, we kind of come like with horse blinders on, right? We're coming to the table to get our bread and our cup, maybe dragging our kid along behind us who's dancing, and we're coming to the table ourselves just for us, and we take it back to our seat for our own time of self-reflection. And none of that is untrue, but there's more. It's one of the reasons why we've been taking the elements together. If you were here 10 years ago, we didn't do that. But one of the reasons we've we've kind of modified our practice is this very part. Because Jesus gave baptism and communion to the church, plural. He didn't give it to individuals. He didn't even give it to families. He gave it to the church. So when someone is being baptized, we're participating together as the one being baptized publicly professes their faith in Christ Jesus before a congregation of witnesses, and together we praise God for the work of the gospel through His Holy Spirit in the life of that person, because if it's in the life of that person, it's in the life of all of us. And we pray the gospel would continue to bear fruit in the life of these sisters who were baptized this morning. Likewise, so that happens in baptism, likewise in communion, we look around And we recognize that we share in this together. Here's a way you can understand it. Baptism is essentially a public declaration from the person being baptized. I'm a Christian. And communion is the congregation making a profession out loud as we all take it together. We believe you. We're making that confession together for one another. Communion is the corporate, public affirmation that we give to one another. We affirm the work of faith that God has begun in you, that is, by His grace, He's continuing to carry out in you. It's not merely an act of personal, individual faith. In fact, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is teaching the crowds part of His Sermon on the Mount. And he says this, if you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember while you're there that your brother has something against you, you should probably leave your gift there and go be reconciled to your brother and then come back. 
And 1 John tells us that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship. The first thing John says, if we walk in the light, in the light of the truth of God, the first thing John tells us, the first benefit, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We look around and we celebrate that we share a bond, fellow heirs and sisters and brothers together with Christ. That's the fourth look. We look around. And fifth, we look ahead. We look forward. Jesus himself was looking forward to the coming kingdom. Look at verse 16, Luke 22. I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Verse 18, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. We have a Passover meal. We have this last supper and we have the Lord's Supper. And because I couldn't figure out how to put it into the Venn diagram in a way that made sense visually, I'm just going to tell you, there's a fourth meal. Jesus is anticipating another meal. A meal that is yet to come. Like the traditional Passover meal, Jesus' resurrection from the grave is like the broken piece of bread that was set aside. In the Passover meal, that piece of bread that's broken is brought out at the end of the meal. Like a surprise dessert piece of bread. Here's where that comes into play. Revelation chapter 19, we have a picture of this meal. Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said, write this down, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. At his last supper, Jesus is looking forward to a great wedding banquet where he will feast with his beloved bride. That is the whole gathered church. And their purpose in the gathering is to give praise and honor to Jesus for his salvation and to live and reign with him in glory forever. It's a meal yet to come. So when we come to the communion table, we look up, reminded of who God is, we're looking in to examine our own hearts, to confess our sins before the Lord. We're looking back to consider the cross, the blood of Christ to sh uh, that was shed for us. We look around at the unity we share as members of Christ's body and members of one another. And we look forward ahead to the great wedding feast that we'll share with all the saints and our glorious and victorious King, Jesus. Now, the structure of our sermon today has been a little different than maybe I tend to preach. Lots to think about, but only here at the end am I really asking any direct application or questions for us, so here it is. Let me just say this. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I just want to encourage you to consider the reality and the weight of your sin and the reality and wonder that someone else would pay for your sin. As you said to us earlier, that someone would sacrifice himself for sinners, for unworthy. Jesus has paid for the sin of all those who trust in him by faith. And perhaps today is the day of your salvation where Jesus is speaking to you that his body was broken for you and his blood was shed for you. If that's you, I want to encourage you to talk to someone, to pray with someone nearby this morning or come to find one of us. But for you, my brothers and sisters in Jesus, some of these looks are easier than others. See, we tend to emphasize the looking in or the looking back, which is good. I don't want to de-emphasize those. But we don't tend to consider as much the looking up or the looking around or the looking ahead. So here's the question. Which look is hard for you? Which one does not come naturally? Which one have you not considered? 
And my encouragement this morning, as we prepare to come to the communion table, is that you would ask the Holy Spirit for help. (laughs) You'd ask the Holy Spirit to lift your head, to fix your eyes on Jesus, so that you might not only taste the bread and the cup this morning, but you might taste and see the goodness of God in Jesus in a new and a fresh way here in the Lord's Supper. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Today, we have an opportunity for our souls to be nourished and refreshed in Jesus. Look at him, your sacrificial lamb, and let your soul be satisfied in all that Jesus is, in all that he has done, and in all that he will do. Come and feast and be satisfied in Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we marvel at the reality that you would save us at all, that you'd love us in this way, that while we were still sinners and enemies and rebels, but God, who is rich in mercy, I pray you would lift our heads this morning that you would help us to see you for who you are, to look up in wonder and awe that you are holy and good and righteous, and that in your kindness you've invited us to your table. You'd help us to look in, to examine ourselves, that your Holy Spirit would be at work to bring conviction and to bring the gospel. You'd help us see the beauty and the horror and the wonder of the cross and all that it means so that we might be saved. You'd help us to look around at this body, this people you're making for yourself and that we would rejoice that we share in this together and that you'd help us to look forward and ahead that this is just a taste as wonderful and as nourishing to our souls as this time and this meal is, it is just a a morsel of the glory of the feast to come. Would you nourish and refresh your people today? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.